Hello and welcome to What Editors Want, the weekly podcast where I, Philip Connor, interview editors from the world of publishing. This week, I'm delighted to say my guest is Bloomsbury's Alexa von Hirschberg. Alexa is the editor behind the groundbreaking Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by Rennie Edo Lodge. She's also the editor of books like Ben Myers' The Offing and Patrick DeWitt's French Exit. We'll also be discussing the works of Kate Tempest, All Among the Barley by Melissa Harrison, and Alexa's first commission, the bestseller, The Watchmaker of Filigree Street. As always, stay tuned until the end for a preview of next week's episode, and enjoy! This week we're here with Bloomsbury, with Alexa von Hirschberg. Alexa, you're the editorial director here. I am, hello. And I'm sure most people, maybe in the world, or in the world of books, certainly know about Bloomsbury, but in your own words, can you tell us a little bit about the company and the type of books you do? Sure, well Bloomsbury is an independent company, and though we're independent, we're rather large. We like to call ourselves Big Small. Um, <laughs> we have offices in Sydney and in Delhi and in New York and in Oxford. Um, we, As well as our trade side, which I'm part of, we have a huge academic and professional division, um, an incredible children's um, list. Uh, I think one of the most famous books in the world, the Harry Potter series, mm-hmm. um, is published by our incredible team. Um, but we are, I think, Bloomsbury is renowned for quality. Um, we publish prize-winning um, literary fiction, but also we have an amazing cookery list. We publish Tom Courage and uh, Hugh Funny Whittingstall and The Flavor Thesaurus, um, <laughs> which is this wonderful gem of a book. Um, we publish history. We publish all sorts. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think um, we've been around for about 35 years, and I'm sure we'll be around for many more. I'm sure too. <laughs> but um, you, what about you? Who? What kind of books do you publish personally? So my list is about 70% fiction. And within that fiction remit, it's predominantly literary fiction. Um, but I also like a, like books that sort of don't quite fit into into specific genres. So a mm. lot of my the novels that I, that I buy tend to be ones that sort of slip slide between different things. Um, I was sort of brought in to commission books that were dynamic and had a lot of energy and a bit more youth. I think the um, the, the older editors felt like they needed to bring a bit more mm. dynamism to the to the list, and so that that was my remit, and still very much is. And I also publish some nonfiction, and that and that veers between, um, you know, game changing, big ideas, polemics, whether that be René Edo Lodge or. Laurie Penny or Johan Hari, um, but I also like memoir and publisher Lexi Sale, who I think deserves his own category. <laughs> <laughs> um, and but how did you get into books professionally um, to begin with? So I um, had really no idea how the publishing industry worked at all. I grew up in Yorkshire, moved to um, London for university, and I, I studied English. And I always was interested in, in, and obviously I was a huge reader, but I, I was interested in how it worked, but didn't know how it worked. So I worked in a bike shop um, after uni for a while, and I was also a jazz promoter. So I, wow. Yeah, I uh, did it for seven, for seven years. I, I was always very interested in really giving a platform for talent. And I think even though I didn't really know much about jazz, I, um, I started this night and it became really successful. And um, so I was doing that, but, you know, not making any money from it at all. Um, and then I happened to be working in a pub and met 
somebody who uh, just, you know, we got chatting and he happened to know somebody who needed an intern uh, at a literary scout. Okay. Uh, and literary scout is um, one of these strange jobs that people never know what they do in the industry, but they <laughs> they <laughs> yeah. essentially scout the UK market for foreign publishers yeah. and send reports to their foreign publishers about what's hot. And so I did that for about six months. And so they were looking at what's coming out in the UK for the possibility of translating it into Spanish or French or exactly. whatever. Yeah, because yeah, they're one of that, like it's got such a sexy job title but like it's one of those people who are kind of they're like secret agents in publishing they are they're the, they're the kind of sexy spies mm. of, uh, of, of publishing but they and they're they're, they're amazing I mean, they read everything across you know all different all different genres and they have to know everything about what's going on in in the in all the different publishing houses um and so they can find the right books for their clients for their for the foreign publishers that mm. they that, that they, who want to buy translation rights. And so, how long did you intern there for? It was about six months, like maybe actually less, maybe more like four. They tend to hire interns for the London book fairs, right? So there's, where there's a lot of reading. The, yeah, uh, the cornerstone of what they do. Exactly. Yeah. And then you it was did you go straight from there to Canon Gate? Yes. So I met um, Jamie Bing, who uh, is the incredible head of Canon Gate Books, um, at a uh, some sort of party where I was sort of anxiously making smoked salmon sandwiches in the corner for this party and <laughs> serving people and feeling very uh, very out of my comfort zone and I just met him and uh, and he he just he needed an assistant we got on because I mean chiefly because he I think he 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 loved the fact that I was into into this sort of jazz funk fusion uh, yeah, that is stuff which is quite absolutely specific. what jumps off <laughs> kind of CV yeah lack of. yeah exactly so I, I mean I, I was uh, I was I was looking actively looking to get a to get a job after the internship and um, I think he he liked the fact that I'd started something started mm. a night that was really successful and was also doing I was also doing a and I'd started a series of events at the Vortex in Dalston called Wordplay, which was about finding a more creative way to sort of promote and make, make book events with music. And so he was into that. And then we just got on and, and he, he, yeah, he hired me as his assistant, which was the dream, yeah. the dream first job. Yeah, I mean, I, I was telling you just before we started that when I first started working on Bound, I was working quite closely with our founder, John Mitchison. It was yeah, a similar thing of, of uh, yeah, who know each other quite well. But like again, it was just, you could be doing anything from day to day. Mm-hmm. I remember one of the authors who we now publish, but, uh, you know, just it was kind of, we were working late and it was half six and he said, do you want to come to a bar? We're meeting this guy. And it was this amazing 60s musician who ran an art gallery in Soho and was writing the, had never written anything before, but had written this thousand page experimental novel. It was just kind of, I don't know, it was like, I felt a bit like one of those uh, sexy scouts or something. <laughs> um, and then you moved to Bloomsbury. Yes. Yeah, so I'd been, at, I was at Canagate for 18 months. Right. And were you, were you all, were you working, doing any editorial work there? Or were you working? No, so that, Jamie? well, I was Jamie's assistant. So there was a lot of kind of uh, admin and, you know, photocopying. And I, and at the time, Canagate didn't have a London office. So right. it was, it's just Jamie's basement. So I was sort of the IT person and um, with no experience whatsoever in IT. Sure. Um, I'd go to the post office um, every, you know, with trundle along with mm. my little trolley of I know of that parcels. feeling very well. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it was that kind of thing. It was sort of, you know, you know, going up and and getting the food ready for the for a launch that he was hosting. It was that it was that kind of thing. And it was that sort of experience is invaluable because you I mean we talked about how mystifying publishing is and all the different people and, and it seems to be some sort of secret code that they're talking. Mm. And it's very it's ve- it's very 
all the relationships are very intimate you know the relationship between the editor and the um and the agents and then the authors and every author is different and requires different things and so you're picking all this up by osmosis and it's a great way to do it in a tiny basement with five other people yeah absolutely i mean one of the i'm i'm sure you get the same but lots of people um especially from my old uni email me asking how they got into publishing and they're always particularly keen to work in the editorial department because mm. i think it feels like what um people think of when they think of publishing mm. so. um, but I always say to them like forget about what your role is like just find the right company mm. um, I think that is kind of the really perfect thing for um, a first role like when I think when I started Unbound they kind of just needed bodies and they were like we'll figure out what you do later mm. you know or what your specific title is I think is. that kind of energy and that's what mm. kind of had and, and these, you know it's, it's, it's celebrating people's personalities you know mm. we are full you know we are people with our own ideas and our own backgrounds and you know we, we have to bring our full selves to our jobs and I think often if you sort of squirrel yourself into a, a, a role with very strict you know tight um just job description you, you your edges get get kind of taken off mm. um quite quickly and uh, and i think that's a real that's damaging for the industry i think you need to be i think that's right actually to find a company that you really admire that you feel that you'd suit and who who wants you not just you know to fill in to fill in some yeah. stuff on 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 the, on the database sure. you know and i think i mean um like i don't know i think all of that stuff and like apps knowing a bit more intimately what what Jamie does but also what um you know the publicist is doing or whatever mm. um really just contributes to make you a better editor okay. and better everything well that's it i mean editors as as you know we we you have to have as i said this sort of 360 degree view of 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 the whole the whole process because mm. you have to spearhead that for your for your author so you have to have an intimate knowledge of publicity and rights uh, yeah. and production and design you know you have to be able to, to sort of bring that all together um and so having access to all those people and not just being in one department is really useful i always i always think international sales is a fantastic job for somebody sort yeah. of starting out because you in people who work in international sales they you know that's a very important part of, of the business it's selling selling our books um in the to, you know, all over the world, whether it's South Africa or Australia or yeah. you know, so Spain, the or to the English language in the English language edition, exactly. Yeah. You get to travel, yeah. You get to meet people. You get to learn about like exchange rates and yeah. kind of. I think just like, like getting like familiar, familiarizing yourself with the business of publishing mm. is really good. Like um, when I uh, my first kind of um, internship was at Faber, that I spent a kind of summer there, and or obviously really wanted to work in the editorial department, mm. and I had three days in editorial and like two days in rights, and I was kind of like, oh, I wonder what this is going to be like, and it was totally invaluable mm. because immediately you're dealing with contracts. You're de we were dealing with agents, dealing with authors. Um, I remember us like I was, you know, the kind of culmination of the internship was you're allowed to run an auction for an audio rights for a title, and it was just like again, just realizing um, what makes a book valuable and how much money it needs to make, and mm -hmm. um, just makes you a better kind of professional book person rather than just a kind of book enthusiast. Exactly, no, that's essential, and I think it's all very well saying you're not, you know, you're not in it for the money, and you are i mean mm. you are you, you know this is it is a, it is a commercial yeah. um you know proposition taking on a book mm. and um finding out i mean I, I i i don't think that means that these things can't be tweaked you know yeah. there's there's always that you know this, this is what's so exciting about publishing is that you never know what's going to be the next phenomenon what's going to take off mm. hopefully you'll be leading that rather than following sure <laughs> um and let's talk about your first book that you um, commissioned. Mm -hmm. So here we've got The Watchmaker of Filigree Street, Natasha Pulley. How did that come about? Yeah, so I was working for 
Alexandra Pringle as her um, editor. So I was I was managing editing her books. Right. Um, so she was the kind of commissioning. Yes. Yeah, so she's um, she's the queen. <laughs> um, she's the editor in chief yeah. and the editor of Richard Ford and Madeline Miller and Colin McCann and Margaret Atwood and giants. And, yeah, giants. And she 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 as I said, she wanted to, to me to start commissioning to bring a bit more energy into the list um, and sort of really dive, just diversify the the list and and so I um, I picked up this novel. And and um, the watchmaker of Filigree Street by Natasha Pulley. She was in her, I think she was in her early twenties. And one thing that Bloomsbury does really well, I think, is is what I call Bloomsbury fantasy. So we published Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, The Song of Achilles by mm-hmm. Madeline Miller. You know, books that do have elements of the fantastical, but are literary and yeah. have they. So as I said, they so they sort of sit in between genres I know I remember being a bookseller and having you know books exactly like that mm-hmm. certainly Mr. Norrell and yeah. wondering where to put it kind of exactly. you know it is absolutely goes in the kind of fancy science but you also want to put it somewhere else where other people will find well, it too exactly and I think we're really good at doing that and it also for Harry Potter you know which mm. is in the fantastical as well so I think um I was drawn to it for that reason but she it, you know it was um I think it what it it had been out for a while and I had the time to sit down and think about it and her tone I just thought she had an absolutely just completely original voice you know this it, so it's historical it's set it's sort of quite steampunkish it's set in Victorian London and it's about a young kind of northern um, clerk in the foreign office who um, meets a Japanese watchmaker and they all the different relationships were unusual um, and it's a sort of mystery set in this you know Gilbert and Sullivan turn up the Kensington tea rooms <laughs> um but it's but you know essentially he can tell the future um and and it's all and so it's it's it's, it's magical you don't know where the history ends and the fantasy mm. begins and I was totally charmed by it and there's a clockwork octopus in it I mean if that's not <laughs> enough to take a book on and what was that experience like I mean did you I mean I'm sure you've done it many times since but that first time taking a book on being its champion do you have to kind of convince the rest of the team here um, yeah so I it was quite it was difficult because actually the book wasn't finished I, I felt and I think that's probably why it hadn't been snapped up because right. I, I mean she's such a distinctive voice and um but I th- the last third needed quite a lot of work. Mm. Um, it just the plot wasn't quite the mo- some of the mo- character motivations weren't really working, and um, so I brought and I and I had a conversation with her, and I thought you know you you, you know exactly what to do. This isn't going to be difficult. So I, I I think I circulated it to the team as it was, but with a caveat that we'd sort out you know elements of it. And I was just it was just really lucky because I think everybody got it. Mm. I I often think that part of the whole process is to, is finding the right home. Just I, like you yeah, were talking absolutely. about finding the right company, it's for an author. It's finding the right home for your yeah. book, finding the right people. I often describe it to people who are asking me about getting into uh, getting their book published. That it's like finding a job. You know, mm. um, you know, sure, any any job will do, but you're not going to be happy there or happy there for long unless it is kind of the right fit. Yeah, um, yeah, that's it. And I think they got it. They, they felt God, this, it reminded them of David Mitchell. You know, mm. I think they saw it. They saw the vision and. Um, they were totally charmed by Katsu, the, the octopus, and <laughs> they loved all the all the sort of the, the Victorian London elements, and 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 um, and so and so we were we, we 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 acquired two novels actually from Natasha at the time, and um, and it was wonderful, and we spent you know a good year and a half, maybe maybe even two years editing it. Yeah, it's really nice. I mean, and often I think there. 
um, I'm always quite encouraged when I know friends or people I know who've um, been signed by a younger editor because I know that they often have time that mm. maybe the Queen of <laughs> Queen of Editorial <laughs> doesn't have to to let it sure. become that over two years and they can take on something that is a bit unfinished and well, I think I think it's partially that your um, you know my my job was essentially managing editing that was what I was paid to do and mm. so the commissioning at the time was was sort of on the side and yeah. it's a really safe way of of building your taste without the pressure of having to bring in revenue. I see. And I thought that was really smart of, of Alexandra to, to do that. And in hindsight, because it was very, I felt, I feel very lucky as well that I was able to have that space, you know, to, to dedicate to to these authors, getting them to, to what I felt they should be without any pressure to be. Yeah, to, to and just learning the ropes, I guess. Learning the ropes, exactly. Um, and it's worth saying this book went on, won the Bethy Trask Award, um, mm. shortlisted for the Authors Club, Best First Novel, finalist for the Locus First Novel Award. So it is also yeah, that kind of sold, outside validation. Sold a quarter of a million copies as yeah, well. So. I mean, that's no small <laughs> number. I mean, like, if that's your first book, you. Well, <laughs> it was, I, it was, it's always gratifying when these things happen. I mean, as everybody who works in publishing knows, you, you, you know, all of your books are your babies, and some. Mm do brilliantly well and you know just you know take off and others don't and it's heartbreaking when they don't but mm. um that's the nature of the, of the business and there's a lot of luck involved and what was interesting about about Natasha's book is that in hardback I mean it firstly it had the most exquisite cover um you can find it if you look on on um on Amazon or whatever you can see the the hardback cover was just magnificent it was this glittering jewel and, I, and our cover designers are just absolutely superb and i think that that really made it into this gorgeous product that people wanted to own mm. and then it just took off it was wor classic word of mouth i remember just checking twitter every day and just seeing you know 10 people not just here in the states you know every day talking about it and i thought oh this is really picking up steam and then and it still it still sells it still sells well even now wow. many years later. That's such a good first experience. <laughs> um, and then the next book is kind of uh, is we're going to talk about Kate Tempest a bit. So lots of people I'm sure will know Kate Tempest from her music, maybe even from her poetry, from her books. But um, what was your experience? Was this the first book of Kate's that you published? Yes, yes. So so Kate, um, this was I think 2013. She'd she just published Brand New Ancients, um, which is her long narrative poem absolutely spectacular and she'd won the ted hughes prize mm. and she just started touring with brand new ancients and it was starting to pick up steam but she hadn't yet become a kind of household name yeah and i uh, her agents her agent sent the first draft of of the of her novel and i didn't really know who she was i wasn't particularly plugged into the performance poetry scene sure um but i just read the first paragraph and I think that's almost helpful when you're um, to not know who they are in a way. I think especially with fiction, you know, just being able to. I spoke to another editor recently mm. who said, um, you know, I said, how important is that initial agent's email that you get? And he said, I don't read. <laughs> I just yeah. open the attachment. It's true. I don't. <laughs> and it, I know, but it is. Yeah. It's purer in a way. You know, I don't know. It's yeah. I mean, I think. I mean, if you know Kate's work and you um, you enjoy it, she's she's completely phenomenal and she's just she's like a thunderbolt mm. in your heart and and I and that's what happened I just felt completely like I was bought I need to I need to work with this person mm. she can conjure she what she she just breathes life into into everything and and I and I, the book needed lots of structural work because it's the first time she had attempted to write and I think she wrote the first draft in like two months or something wow. or even six weeks or it was this sort of slightly stream of consciousness style which gave it this 
energy. Um, but it was, but yeah, it was so, and, and it was, I was lucky because um, my, the MD, he, he, I just played, played him a clip of her on YouTube and he got it completely. Um, he said, okay, we'll, we'll you know, because we had to, you know, it was, a, it was, it was my first big deal. You know, it was the first when I actually paid quite a lot of money for something, which is, I think, the first time they wanted to, they trusted me. With, yeah, <laughs> with their, with but also coffers. terrifying. But terrifying. Yeah. But I, but I also completely knew it was the right decision. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she is just an absolute joy to so, work with. So both of these books so far, you've, you've done, you've, you know, you seem they came to you not in their infancy, but um, mm. certainly not as a finished product. Do you mm. think that, has that changed over your time at Bloomsbury? Do you, you know, there's some people um, say that one of the trends in publishing over the last, say, 10 years is that um, editorial work is being done more by agents and that mm. finished products are, you know, obviously more, e- are easier to convince people to buy. Have you yeah. noticed that at all? Is that your experience? So as you, you know, I'm an editorial director now and I, and I, and I don't, have any other you know <laughs> I have to you know I have to uh, you know uh, hit our revenue targets and all those things and so it is it is difficult to find the time I think one of the interesting things especially now I'm a mum is is just how much time you you know you spend outside of office hours editing and and reading mm. and you can't do that so much when you have a family and you have to be respectful of you know those boundaries that you set for yourself for, to have a healthy work-life balance um so that all means that there is there is less time for editing, for sure. Um, but it also, but but I'm I'm I don't know. Maybe I'm a control freak. Maybe all editors are control freaks. But I also like I th- I also think that uh, an author deserves an editor who is going to edit their work and look at their work in close detail mm. and make it the best it can be. And so when I take on a project. If I don't have the time to spend editing it, then I I might not take it on. Really. Um, but I will. But but often, if I fall in love with it, I will, and I'll make the time. So yeah. it's it's just dependent on the project. Because some need, for example, Melissa Harrison, who's an, who's just an extraordinary yeah. writer. Um, she you know she, when she delivers, the, they don't need much work because she's she's short. She just she's just that kind of writer. She's very precise. They don't need much work. Um, so this is Melissa Harrison's All Among the Barley, mm-hmm. um, which just came out last year, is that right? Yeah, it came out last year, paperback came out um, in March. Yeah, I, I read it over the last couple of weeks and it reminded me of something like an L.P. Hartley, like that go-between yeah. book. Like there's something, mm. one, it's that really, cha- it's a lovely thing to read, but it's such a challenging thing to create, which is a narrator who doesn't quite know what's going on, even if the reader's picking up on it that is that's the hardest that i think the hardest thing it was the first time she'd written i think the first time she'd written the first person um and then she switched and then but, but getting but getting into that into that into that mind of that young mm. woman is incredibly difficult and it's the time and the countryside because mm. her whole life is so based on nature and the farm and the crops um, and she, you know, it just feels so authentically. And so basically this woman, as you of course, are, but for people listening, um, yeah. she, uh, a completely different type of woman visits the village um, who's much more modern and cosmopolitan um, and gives her a kind of vision of another life potentially. Um, but it's just such a, ch- it's such a charming and chilling book at the same time. I know. Well, I think that's, that's the genius of it. I mean, John McGregor called it a masterpiece. I think it absolutely is. It's, it's um, a classic piece of storytelling. Historic, it was her first historical novel, and it's um, coming of age story. Mm. But it also explores how 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 fascism 
can creep up on you um, and especially I think it's you know we it, the, the dangers of nostalgia yeah so it could not be more contemporary and relevant for what's going on right yeah. now and there's a really great um, note from the author at the end of it which says I think um, which explains a bit of the history you know it's only kind of a couple of pages but it's just because when you finish it you kind of think that couldn't be right that can't be what it was like and then you know she, she can back it up and it was mm-hmm. um, and it's just that little you know it's almost a tangent of history or something that could have been and then wasn't but it's really interesting as you say in kind of contemporary context to look at it Mm, yeah exactly and then another book that you've uh, published we're talking about brother which is again a completely different setting but again a kind of childish um narrator Mm. who is steeped in the world that he kind of understands and kind of doesn't Mm. um how this is much more american and well so david chariandi um is a canadian author he grew up in an area called Scarborough, which is not the Scarborough that was near me in, in <laughs> sure. Georgia, but Scarborough, Toronto, which is uh, an area which is full of immigrants, and it's it's a kind of it's that kind of community where there are a lot of people who are uh, undervalued and undermined, um, who don't have very much privilege, and so he comes from that background, and he had been published previously in Canada and been nominated for sort of eleven major awards all of the awards really in Canada that you could possibly be nominated for and I'd never heard of him he'd never been published outside and I I got this novel it's a slim novel it took him 10 years to write and he said that if he had 10 more years it would be half half as long beautiful spare elegiac prose and I just thought he needs to be read Uh, and he's just been this, this, this novel brother is about a young man and his mother who are dealing with grief and it's set in the past and the and the present and it's um it, it it's in in one paragraph you you of, of his writing you he conjures this whole world and I, and he's a magician and it's, for me he's just as good as someone you know not, or not just as good because he can't really relate to that but he's he's as fine a writer as you know Anne Michaels or or Michael Andache mm. and both of them are fans fans of his and so I was so happy to bring him to Bloomsbury I feel like we're the perfect home for him here. So he had been published in Canada and you got, or in North America and you guys were doing the UK edition? Is so that he right? wasn't published in North America. Right. We actually we have a wonderful team in, in, in North America um, who acquired it along... We, we acquired World English Rights. Right. And so we've published him both sides of the Atlantic. Okay. So he'd only been published in Canada. He hadn't been published more widely. Wow, that's such a kind of exciting prospect to oh. take something that is... This is what I think you you live for really as an editor mm. it's just find that find that talent that is that is just not being published and yeah. not being promoted and and then you can really you know I, I mean he is he's extraordinary he's he's really one of the finest writers i think we have on our list wow. so and when you say about finding that talent i mean what um are the avenues through which you do that i mean i know mm. that's a kind of really difficult question but do you do you, for instance do you do you get most of your books through literary agents is that i do yeah, yeah. i i there are some that 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 you know come via different means, or either I meet an author or I go seeking them. But more often than not, I'd say ninety percent yeah. come from agents. And what about and what and was David part of that? So he, he did he have an agent in Canada and yeah. he was looking for a wider publisher. Actually, it was quite. It was so uh, the company, the Canadian, the Canadian publishing house ha- actually had acquired World Rights. Right. So it was their their co agent sold it. Oh, I see. So it came from slightly left field yep. place, which is I think probably why. It, 
there wasn't more competition, although there was quite a lot of competition <laughs> for mm-hmm. it. And was it a different experience taking on something that was already published in a certain territory, you know, that was kind of fully formed, mm. you know, that you didn't get to change the ending or shape in the same way? Um, yeah, it was. It's, it's, a di- it's a different experience when you originate a title because you are, you know, responsible for crafting, you yeah. know, well, to helping the author craft their every sentence and... But as I said, this this came just come fully formed, uh, which is an absolute joy because you know you you, you can focus on the publishing of it. Mm. Um, I mean, the, the, being an editor, as you know, it's not just about the the line editing or the acquiring; it's about the publishing, and that is that takes a lot of time. You know, getting the copyright, getting the cover right, yeah. making sure it's, it's you know you send it to those twenty five thirty people who are really going to champion it. Mm. I remember when I was th- that summer I interned at Faber. It was mm. uh, when they were just starting their classics list, mm. and one of the first jobs I had was to look at all the old copy for some of their books. And of course, because you're talking about William Golding or there was Sylvia Plath and there was Ted Hughes, you're not just looking at uh, a UK edition and a US edition. You're looking at 50 editions of different books over the last mm-hmm. however many years. And it was just so interesting to chart the different approaches to copy. You know, mm-hmm. there was uh, and how it, you know, it's certainly very different on either side of the Atlantic, but certainly changed a lot from the 80s as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you, it's not a, it's not something you get to do a lot as an editor, as a publisher, is see what someone else would have done with it. Yeah, that's that that sounds absolutely a fascinating. Yeah, thing. I often find I think nowadays copies shorter because mm. you know our, all of our attention spans are, are limited, and <laughs> we we expect to be able to understand what a book is you know about within a second we've only got yeah. a second or you know two seconds or something and they used to do that fabulous thing where on the whole back cover of the hardback would be a close-up portrait of the author's face oh, yes. or something it's just incredible um but i'm going to ask you to change tact a little bit now uh-huh. and talk about non-fiction okay. um so we've got um a book that has been i don't know one of the most important books of the last couple of years and was has been absolutely everywhere mm. which is why i'm no longer talking to white people about race mm. um what about that how where, where did that come from as well well one of the brilliant things about being an editor at bloomsbury is that you can publish fiction and non-fiction mm. and that's why i love being here um so that that came in from an agent that was a proposal it was it was wasn't called why i'm no longer talking to white people about race it had a different title um and it was a short proposal and I was completely floored, floored by it. Um, I, I found myself. I think what, one of the things you look for when you're reading a proposal or anything is just this sort of almost. It's almost like a magical. It's like you feel this sort of internal shiver almost. It's. it's I know maybe that sounds quite. No, mystical. I know exactly what you mean because it, you're not looking at something objectively and saying is this good or not. You're kind of always asking, is this for me? And sometimes mm. things just are really right for you. What, what she did, which was really unusual, I was brought up in South Africa um, in the apartheid. So I, well, I was, I, before I moved to Yorkshire, and um, and I think what I found fascinating about being in the UK is that there's not really, a, a, there's not, you don't have many open conversations about race and systemic racism, and, mm. and it, but it's there, you know, it's absolutely there, and no one's talking about it. And I was looking at reading, you know, essays coming from the States, um, you know, Roxane Gay or Kiese Lehman and thinking there's so much dialogue going on, there's all this conversation happening and where's, what's going on in the UK? It's almost like the people think we don't, we don't have a race problem. You know, mm. I've, I've, people had said that, you know, or there's no black market, all those, all those things, which are utterly untrue. Yeah. And here was a voice, young, who was cl- crystal clear in her 
in her style, mm. who makes you deeply think about your workplaces, your friendship groups, the way that you interact, your, you, and it and it made it very real. You know, why are we, you know asking all these questions and 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 presenting facts about you know how privilege works, what whiteness is, and I just was. It was actually a really interesting editorial meeting because everybody was quite quiet mm. because there were there were few people of color at the time in in the team and I think there was it was truth it was it was the truth and I mm. think we all knew it and she yeah. even inter I think addresses it in the book you know obviously you have to talk to white people about race if you're going to come in contact with the publishing industry yeah. <laughs> um, but it's it's really interesting because in some ways you know if you were thinking about a book like this it could be a history book. Um, but it's not a history book. It's much more personal than that. And I think, you know, certainly in those opening pages when she's learning about this stuff and you're learning about it with her, it just mm -hmm. gives it a kind of energy. And, mm -hmm. yeah, that voice you mentioned, it's just so captivating. Mm -hmm. um, I think it, I think a lot of people are confused about how to navigate these issues. Mm -hmm. um, if, if you're a white person, I think. If, and, and also there's, if you're not, it's yes i i feel this way too you know this is the way i've been brought up this is what's happening i can't get i can't get the column that i deserve why are all these people getting jobs and not me and you know there's this sort of frustration and there's this confusion and i think what the book does is is acknowledge that and say look i'm not going to talk to you <laughs> if you don't acknowledge that there's a problem if you're willing to sit down with me um, and have a conversation these are some of the things you have to know first and I thought her vision, when I, when, I, when I met her, I said, okay, so who's going to buy the book? You know, what's your vision for it? And she said, I want to be able to just say, okay, here you go, read this, and then we can talk. Mm. It's like playing catch up on things you should know or something. <laughs> yeah, well, it's become a kind of handbook, really. Yeah, and it, but it also, I mean, it does really important things. Like it gives you a um, framework and a, a vocabulary to a mm. sense to talk about these things. Exactly. Um, mm. It was. It's such a. It's a. You know, as a white person, it is a challenging read because you're reading things that you don't want to admit are true, but you kind of know are. Well, even, uh, yeah, even the the very tight the title, I thought it is it was just brilliant because it's it's so direct and controversial and it needs to be. You know, it needs to be. It, it, you can't just you know pussyfoot around. Yeah. You know, this is this is why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. Yeah. And the ve but the very fact the genius cover designer Greg Heinemann. Um, whited out the the two white people so it looks like you know if you've seen the cover you could read it as why i'm no longer talking about race but then you see debossed onto yeah. the cover is to white people and i think the very fat white people are not used to being told they have a race because they they think they're normal yeah and i think that was quite hard and also hard to acknowledge for a lot of people and and at the beginning i think Rennie talks about it in the final chapter but that booksellers were having com people complaining about about the the title, which only speaks for how important the book really yeah, is. Yeah, but that cover design is so striking and mm. is absolutely something that you've seen now ripped off a million <laughs> times since. It's totally become a kind of type of cover over the last couple of years because this book has been so mm. monumental. Yeah, well, it, I I think you, as a publisher, you again you live for for changing the conversation. Yeah, I think that's that's what why we do it. You know why we. We do spend our weekends editing and reading is so we can try and be useful and 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 you know as I said try and try and change change the conversation and that's that's what this book's done and that it's a team effort. There was another brilliant editor, Angelique, who did extraordinary editorial work on it, and Greg, I said the designer, is just superb. And I think 
altogether, it was one of those publications that that we we did what we could, but then it, the market was ready. Mm. It was, you know, that we'd we'd seen the kind of mainstreaming of feminism, and it was only a matter of time before conversations about race was going to start to become mainstream too. And it so it hit the market at just the right time. Um, so we were very lucky from that point of view. Yeah, it is. That is, you know, if you talk about go back to your watchmaker of filigree street as well and selling so well. Um, you know, you can do everything right as a publisher yeah. or as an editor, and mm-hmm. it doesn't result in success or in sales. Mm. Um, and sometimes, you know, it is just find, getting it at the right moment, and it, there's no science to it. It's just in your gut, or it's luck. Yeah, I think it is, and 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 it's it's when everything comes together. You, you know, when when I just I remember when um, the book was about to come out, and I think it was so she, the book was coming out in June. And in March, she was invited to speak at the Women of the World um, Festival at the Southbank Centre. And I think, it, I mean, she, at the time, she was a journalist. She was she'd done some, you know, work on Sky News and various things, but she she hadn't written anything yet. And she was interviewed um, in this small room at the Southbank Centre, and it was completely full. In fact, about fifty people were standing outside and couldn't get in. And I thought oh my god you know there is a hunger for this conversation it was extraordinary i think there were like i think it we could see 150 people and there were or maybe 70 people and there were 100 it was just absolutely rammed and i remember going to speak speak to our salesperson the week later i said oh this is this, this is, is this is something and then she suddenly got the front cover of stylus magazine which actually i have on my wall yeah um and which for a debut is remarkable yeah incredible and then so it was it was sort of it yeah you, you sort of get that you, you as we were building up to publication we got the feeling that this was going to be um something special and my god it really has and she has worked so so hard um she's not just she's not she's still sort of promoting the foreign editions of the book wow um, on tour on tour <laughs> yeah yeah wow. um now i'd be really remiss if i got to interview and didn't get to talk about patrick dewitt oh um yeah. so I mean, lots of people will know Patrick from the Sisters Brothers, mm-hmm. which is one of those cult classics. Can you call something cult classic yeah. when it was so popular as well? You know, you sometimes we meet people who've read the Sisters Brothers and we just have to go and talk about it for a while. Um, but this is um, The French Exit, yeah. which is such a charming, whimsical, lovely, fun book. Um, and I really loved it. How, um, how, how did you come to work with Patrick? Well, um, Patrick had been published by Granta for a while um, by Max Porter who oh my god his Lanny I'm, I just want to talk to everyone about Lanny but yeah, anyway he's, he's I know I was very fo- <laughs> I, I got to review it before it came you? out and I was just like yeah I loved it I just think he's he's a, he's a genius but anyway so he was published by Max and I, and I think that he, he he wanted to find a new home for his work and it was one of those emails that just come in and I just jumped out of my chair and immediately called the agent. It was like, ah, because I've been a huge fan of Patrick. For me, that he absolutely embodies what he, sort of person, sort of writer I want to work with. He's got a really distinctive sense of his own style. He, he has a strong, clear vision. He's a, he's a wonderful stylist. And I think what he does is so fun, it's sort of whimsical, as you say, whimsical. He, he um, but it's also very sad. I mean, he's mm. he, for me, he's got this sort of, everything has this, deep almost tragedy yeah it's about got this it. existential angst to it yeah. or something i know what you mean like it would be so it, this isn't uh uh what's the word um flimsy book about you know that's kind of 
from one thing to another. It's got real weight to it. It really does, but he, but it's just joy. It's yeah. just, uh, for, I mean, French, I mean, all his books are, uh, what he does is, you know, he flips, he takes a genre and sort of flips it. And he writes here like a kind of 1920s British woman. Yes. You know, <laughs> Ivy Compton Burnett or yeah. whatever, um, Edith Wharton or and he takes that sort of comedy of manners and makes it into a sort of tragic comedy of manners. Mm. Um, I don't know what I'll think of this, but I, I just think it would be like it's like a perfect Wes Anderson film. Oh if anyone God. that watches Wes Anderson, this is the this is a book for Everybody you. Everybody compares him to Wes Anderson, and I, I think for good reason. But he, I, I don't he think he sure particularly he hates appreciates it. We're <laughs> <laughs> down to the level of um, you know just the cat, for instance, oh, which yeah. is just a bit like your octopus earlier. I mean, I really think animals do sell books. You know, <laughs> Yeah, well, Small Frank is is a rather genius creation. Um, yes, he's he in the in the novel. If you haven't read it, he embodies the um, well. He supposedly embodies the spirit of the protagonist, Francis Price, her late husband, who is this notoriously immoral lawyer who died in sort of scandal, and she's been living in the wake of that. Um, but he's supposed to embody his soul. <laughs> <laughs> which the thing is it sounds ridiculous I remember writing the copy and thinking this sounds yeah. stupid but actually it works it works mm. in the story and it's totally unlike some of the other books we talked about earlier it's not a fantasy book at all it's not no. trying to straddle those those particular two genres mm-hmm. it is grounded in the kind of to know yeah it's partly in the real world but it's certainly in that kind of early 20th century well that's it one of the things I love about it is that it feels it feels contemporary but it also it's, it feels like it easily could be in the 1920s but yeah. he doesn't he, he consciously doesn't have mobile phones or and they arrive in Paris on a ship and so it feels quite timeless which I mm. love yeah because it's got that lovely kind of I don't know almost post-world who Paris feel about it mm. you know like the that um um, what's the American like expat kind of American community there which is yeah. really great um, and then what, we're going to talk about one more book yes yeah, so um, you're referring to The Offing by Benjamin Myers who um, you, your listeners may know um, from The Gallows Pole mm. uh, which is an extraordinary uh, sort of true story um, set in set in the north all of Ben's work is, is set in the, in the north of England and he said that you know, in the past, that all of his work form a kind of alternative history of the North. He finds sort of overlooked stories or people, because as he says, the North isn't just a place, it's many different places. Yeah, and certainly in the Gallus Pole, there's a, um, you know, we spoke a bit about, about one of those tangents of history, but that is certainly that taking a true thing that not many people know about and yeah. really bring bringing it to the forefront. Bringing it to, to total violent greedy brilliant yeah i mean there's a lot of themes in all of ben's work about class and and the north and and uh and literature and and landscape particularly he's a wonderful um, Mm. writer of landscape and uh yeah so his new novel we've we've taken one he was published by an amazing um independent press called blue moose that who based in hebden bridge and they have an extraordinary list so do check it out um he was published by them for many, many books, and they. It was the. I think that everyone felt that the time was right for him to move to a, to a bigger publishing house. Um, the Gallows Pole had been incredibly successful, won the Walter Scott Prize. So we've taken on, we've in partnership with Blue Moose, we've we've taken on his backlist, um, and we're publishing the offing in August this year. And it's a real change of direction for him, and I'm pretty sure this is going to be a big hit I just have it in I have a feel I mean hopefully it will be and I won't be shown up but, yeah, but um, he's one of those people who's just you know just everyone's just waiting for oh, the big hit to come along but it's a re- I think I think as you could say, I think maybe the Gallows Pole and, and Beastings and Pig Iron 
a lot about men and greed and, and they're quite bleak and quite dark and a lot of kind of running across the moors and things like that. Um, they're gorgeous and I absolutely love what he does. Um, this is this is a real change of direction. It's It's got a f- central female character called Dulcie. It's... um. It celebrates friendship between an older woman and a and a younger a younger boy who is from the Dur- Durham Pit villages, and it's about sea swimming and food and loss and this friendship between these two unlikely people. It, it, it's a sunny book. It's actually set over a over a summer in in Robin Hood's Bay, which is in between Whitby and Scarborough. Um, so it's um, I think it's a book that will bring him to the mainstream. Mm. And is this something you've done before of um, taking someone who, who's who been published at a smaller press and taking on their backlist? Yeah, so um, I I think, as we said a little bit earlier when we were chatting, I think what the independent publishers are doing at the moment is just extraordinary and very exciting. And I have so much respect for, for all the independent publishers, actually, because they, um, you know, they're working with incredibly tight budgets and... Anyway, but but um, Lilliput is a a wonderful publisher in in Ireland, um, and they found a writer called Rob Doyle, who I think is an absolute genius. He his first novel, Here Are the Young Men, sort of it was it's a story of these. It's a, the easiest way to describe it is a kind of Irish train spotting, uh, and it burst onto the scene. Um, when was it 2015 maybe 2014 and we bought the paperback rights and then took took on his short story collection after that published his short story collection this is the ritual and in january next year we're actually publishing his new novel threshold which honestly is the most unpitchable (laughs) most most utterly extraordinary brilliant book i can't wait to share it with you actually that's actually enough for me like, <laughs> describing something as unpitchable it's like i'm kind of in well if you like kind of jeff dyer or bolagno or uh, sheila hetty or it, it's it's auto fiction but it, it, it which is i hate using that word because it just conjures up all sorts of things but he, he thinks but he is he's a genius it's sort of part drug trip part non-fiction part essay part criticism great I, you're I, saying I, all I'm, the things i'm hoping that it, we can get it banned um <laughs> and it's also got one there's a scene in it in 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 a in a Berlin club which is so depraved that actually it, and funny that it sort of changes your view of the world. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the sort of life before at, and the after. Look in your eyes, though you look I a bit know, scarred. I am it. a bit scarred. Oh. No, you do get a bit scarred when you read Rob, but um, in the best possible way. But mm-hmm. it's it's that wonderful moment where a writer. I mean, I think my, one of my favourite quotes that describes his writing is. Um, God may be dead, but a literary star is born, um, which is fantastic because he's you know heavily influenced by um, philosophy and and things like that. So, uh, but he he you know this sort of errant youth and this sort of male ego and all these things that he's exploring in his work, and then this new novel arrives, which is really about writing and aging and what mm. that means, and it's full of all like, real wisdom. Mm. Um, so I'm excited about that. Yeah, I love. I mean, I totally. I'm. I absolutely always keep an eye out of sheer readerly interest yeah. on what some of the small press are doing. Like, you know, from Emer McBride, like yeah. Gally Beggar, who obviously was taken by Faber and went on an incredible success. But mm-hmm. you know, other Irish publishers, which you might say I'm overly preoccupied yeah. with. You know, things like um, Stinging Fly or Stingy Tramp Fly, Press. Great. Um, I know, like Hamish Hamilton are publishing the wonderful Emily Pines Notes yeah. of Self here in the UK, which is going to be gray and then even Fitzcarraldo have taken on pond which was a really extraordinary uh-huh. um book so i think that's a it's a it's really for anyone who is interested in kind of 
unusual is not even fair but kind of uh, things off the beaten track but mm. um you know the next big thing they're absolutely where lots of the most interesting completely books and, and i think from. and i think um i i love I, lo- I as i said I, I have huge respect for the for independence and i think it's really important to support their work mm. um and actually one thing that we did with gallows polls you know we did a license deal with 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 blue moose um rather than buying buying the books outright because then they get money you know right so it's it's a it's a mutually beneficial thing and um and it was very conscious that we did that because we want to we want to support that kind of ecosystem yeah, because they, they they do really important work and i think one of the things i mean ireland has an amazing sort of um organic kind of supportive writerly uh, they have lots of journals and they have they have lots lots going on there but I think particularly in 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 England and and Scotland and Wales I feel there's not that same sort of support for for young writing and and particularly sort of more experimental writing I mean compared to Europe you know France and you know there's so much going on there and I think they they, they provide a really important um, important service to yeah. literature and and we should support them um, and also read their books. <laughs> yeah. Well, while we're talking about other publishers and other mm. books, just to finish, I'm going to ask you to change tact a little bit. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about lots of books you have read, but I'm just, or have published rather. But I'm just wondering, as a reader, is there something that you've read recently that you've really loved? Oh God. Well, Lanny. Yeah. Let's talk about Lanny. So mm. Lanny is the uh, fall. Well, it's not a sequel, but it is the latest book from Max Porter, former mm. Grant earlier, who was also, you know. Um, Grief is a thing with feathers is you know the much loved yeah. book of recent years, but Lanny is I don't know it's kind of similar and kind of completely different. Well, you can tell it's the same author. He's he's got a distinctive rhythm and um, an energy on the page, and mm. his vocabulary is sort of divine and uh, and his yeah he and his his and also his um he, I mean you could call him experimental you know in some ways the way he plays with type and form. And yeah, so it tells the story of a young boy who's gone missing in a kind of village on the London's periphery, mm-hmm. a kind of commuter village, I guess. And um, it kind of concentrates on Lanny's parents, but also there's Mad Pete, who's a local mm-hmm. artist, but also this kind of supernatural kind of woodland figure mm-hmm. um, who only the reader kind of knows or suspects is responsible for this disappearance but he does this really extraordinary thing where there are sections in the book where there'll only be sentence long or two sentence long paragraphs which coming from different people in the village voices and they kind of rise to this cacophony of it's music it's yeah. music that's what it is and it's uh, and it's just the most I actually found it really profoundly moving mm. And I don't, I, qu- I can't quite work out why. <laughs> I was trying, I was talking to his agent about it. I was like, I was weeping. I think it's this, there's something so celebrate. He celebrates language, um, and also the natural world and our connection with our past. And obviously, your your, you know, your heart, your heart's breaking for Lanny. Um, but but it, it's it's just a it's just a sort of symphony. I love it. I loved it. I think it's uh, something about for me as well because he, he, they're quite short books in terms of word count, and I think it just does so much with so little. Yeah. And I don't know how he does that. <laughs> <I laughs> that's it that's did. always the best thing, isn't it? When they, how did they do that? Yeah. Um, but I thought it was beautifully published by Faber as well, and um, and it you know it got into the top ten. I think for me, I just I always rejoice when a literary novel 
that's maybe doing something different with form or gets into the top 10. Mm. I remember bestseller um, chart. I think, yes. I remember um, seeing Max after after his first book came out and, you know, being unable to not ask him what he was doing next. And uh, he said something horribly uncommercial. (laughs) Well, you know, it's always your first book in a way. But it's just really heartening when books like that can... Um, go on to do well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's been so many. Uh, there's been lots of amazing books published recently. That I love. I loved Sarah Moss's um, Ghost Wall. Yeah, extraordinary. Um, oh, you'll notice they're all slim books. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I have a, I have a massive tendency towards slim books. Mm. I, I, I mean, partly it, it satisfies some instinct in me to kind of get things done, like I feel yeah. efficient. But also, I, I just really admire when people can tell, a, uh, create a world with so little. Mm. I've been yeah. saying that I just I, I published Samantha Shannon who is very much in fantasy she doesn't really slip in between genres so much she's fantasy um, which is I, th- I think 800 and something wow. pages The Priory of the Orange Tree got number two in the bestseller chart well there you go um, wow this is a, a I'm just, uh, this um, is a block that's coming towards me it's, wow. it's huge so so although I love slim books there's something very satisfying Absolutely. about an escapist fantasy and certainly fantasy. in that genre where you, you the, the world is about being not light touch but being kind of full and realised <laughs> well it's wow. that kind of intricate world building that is a that monster you can, you, can, you can sort of do your do your uh, do your weight training with yeah, should absolutely. you so wish okay well thank you very much Alexa uh, editorial you. director here at Bloomsbury I've been Philip Connor and I'll be back next week thank you for listening I'm really excited to bring you next week's episode when my guest will be author and editor Alex Christoffi. Alex won the Betty Trask Award for his novel Glass in 2016 and will also be talking about his most recent book, Let Us Be True. He's also a former agent. He sold the book The Death of Bees by Lisa O'Donnell for a six-figure advance and as an editor, he's the publisher of the real-life thriller behind the story of the century, The Panama Papers. If you'd like to stay in touch with the show, you can find us on Twitter or at whateditorswantpod at gmail.com. Thank you.